The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 22, and today is Reformation Sunday, and that might not mean much to you guys, but it means a ton to me. However, my original sermon for today was to talk about Martin Luther, the German guy who changed the course of history in the church. So I even wore this shirt today. I'll take off my jacket. I was going to wear it to try to look hippie and cool, but I don't need to do that because it's hot or I'm having a hot flash. One of the two. But this shirt is to celebrate that. It's to celebrate that there is this amazing reformation, and I wanted to teach about it, but instead of that, I was reading Martin Luther, and Martin Luther, for those of you who don't know him and haven't read him, he was a beer-drinking, foul-mouthed, very rude person, and he had some quirks about him, but considering where he was coming from, uh, he made some huge changes, and one of them was this. He made it for the first time really widespread within the church. The people of God were able to read the Bible for themselves, to engage and connect with God for themselves, and to focus and make it all about Jesus all the time. Now, that is not something that the church had done for the 1,500 years prior. Today, I didn't, I wanted to talk about Martin Luther, but instead I thought if I talked about Martin Luther, Martin Luther would call me a bad word from the grave because he died so we could talk about Jesus. So, Psalm 22. We're going to be there this morning. We are going to camp out, and I'm going to pray because uh, I am very high in energy, and I thank you for those of you who came and brought kids, especially. You are alleviating what will, will always be the busier service, just so in case you didn't know that. But we have a fair number of kids back there, so next service we should be legal back there. Um, and I only know that because a few of the families with, with lots of kids, their kids are sick, and that's good today only. Um, and, and generally on Sundays, okay, like sick kids are good, but leave them at home. Um, and, and we're making space. This is space for us to continue to lead more people to come and know Jesus. But today, this is for us, family. This, this psalm is for us. So we're going to pray, and we're going to look at the psalm that Jesus pointed to from the cross. Father, I, I ask you in advance that you would calm me down, Lord, and, and rile this chapel family, the 9 a.m. chapel family, up. God, it's earlier than it's been for some of us but Lord, you are awake. You watch us while we sleep. You do not sleep. You have a plan for us and a plan for our day long before history began. You knew where we would be today. So I pray that every person here, God, would be encouraged. That every person here would see, see you for, forefront in their lives, in their mind this morning. That you would become front and center. Lord, I pray that this cry from the cross would change lives this morning. And God, I'm, I'm under no um, delusion that most people who come to early services tend to be people who have already attended church gatherings. So I, I pray for anyone in here that may not yet know you, that you would spark life to their heart. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said. Okay, so we are going to read some select verses because Psalm 22 is huge. But in case you haven't remembered uh, what happened on the cross, in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, Jesus was on the cross, and it says, in the ninth hour, he cried out. And in our Bibles, it still has the words he said, untranslated. It says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which just means, it's a fancy way of me to sound nerdy. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus said Right before the end. He, we only have record of him saying a few things on the cross. One is, I thirst. One is, to tell us die. It is finished. And the other one is, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, back then, they didn't have chapters, verses. So if you wanted to point people to something, you would say the first line of it. And that's the psalm that we look at today. This is the psalm that Jesus was pointing all of those people around him. He was saying, go look at this psalm. So we're going to read, and and I'm going to skip through some verses. You can follow along, and I'll, I'll mention the verse when I shift. So in verse 22, verses 1 to 3, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd. My tongue sticks to the roof. Uh, it sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And my clothing. for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. We'll stop right there. Man, this psalm was written centuries before Jesus was crucified. Centuries before crucifixion was a common practice, David is writing this psalm and saying, my enemies circle me, my hands and feet are pierced, and my enemies who are down here are casting lots for my clothes. Now, if you didn't grow up in the church, you don't know this story, but this is what happened to Jesus while he was on the cross. It said he was thirsty. David says in this passage, he says, my my tongue is stuck to my jaw. And then he says, my hands and my feet were pierced. There is no record anywhere of David being crucified ever. So in this psalm, we've got to answer a few things. First, we have to ask, what is the mystery? Because this psalm is very mysterious. Because David was never encircled by enemies and crucified. He was chased by enemies. But David was never brought to trial because back then kings had coups. They didn't have trials with a judge and a sentencing. If you wanted a kingdom, you went and killed the previous king. So he was chased around and he was threatened, but he was never pierced in this way. As far as we know, he never had enemies that were dividing his garments. That's something that was only done during a capital punishment crime. So somebody was dying and the the guards would get to split the clothing. But we know that David did not die that way. So we have to ask, what is the mystery of this psalm? What is the solution? And then what does this have to do with us today? Why would Jesus, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday, why is this the psalm that he wants us to look to? And and there's a few things we have to think about. Uh, One is, is this. If this psalm 
is something that David didn't personally experience, we have to ask ourselves why or how did he write it? And I think Acts chapter 2 gives us a good explanation. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching, and Peter says that David was a prophet of God, that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. But because he was a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's Acts 2.30 for the Bible nerds. So David was looking ahead in the songs that he was writing. David was looking ahead in the psalms and the poems he was penning. He was looking ahead saying, there will come a day where one of my offspring will sit on the throne. And this psalm is one of those psalms. This psalm goes on to say, and I'll, I'll, uh, because it gets really good news in the end of it. In 31, in 30 and 31 of Psalm 22, it says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it, that he has accomplished it, that all the families of the world will come worship before him. That's in verse 27. This Psalm is David saying, we are looking forward to something great that is coming. There are too many of us who spend too much time looking backward at things, and we don't look forward to what God has in store. Now, as Christians, we should be caught between two glances. We need to look back to the cross, and I keep looking this way because Corey moved my cross this morning. We need to look back, back to the cross and forward. We need to look back to the cross to see what God has done and forward to see what God is going to do through us in our lives. This is the great mystery of this psalm, that David would see what God is going to do, and that God, in the span of history, almost a thousand years before Jesus says, David, write down something about thirst and being encircled and being pierced in your hands and feet. I want you to write this down, put it to some music, and I want the Israelites to sing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, so that when my son is on the cross... And he says this, none of the Jewish people there will have any doubt, any question. They'll know exactly what he's talking about. They may doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, but they will know exactly what psalm to go read because they've been singing it for century after century after century. And we have this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone ever felt forsaken by any by something? I felt forsaken by God. I felt forsaken um, by people, by friendships. Uh, it, for being forsaken is somewhat part of the human condition. If you have not been forsaken, you just haven't been living long enough. It will come. This cry teaches us something about Jesus' suffering. Because he had been flogged with a cat of nine tails. That's leather strips with stones and shards of bone and glass. And it would usually be a branch of multiple strands. And they, he had been hit with that. Jesus had already had, at this point, his hands and his feet pierced. Jesus, at this point, had already had a crown of thorns pushed onto his head. Jesus had already been mocked and beaten. And this was three hours after he was crucified. He didn't cry out during all of those horrendous things on the way to the cross. He didn't say, my hands, my hands. He didn't say, my head, my head. It hurts. It took all the way to the last moment. He endured the most physically tormenting torture that we could imagine and went there without words. So why is it that in this last moment, he cries out? 
Because there, there is a pain that I think goes beyond the physical. I think physical pain hurts. Uh, if any of you are in my life phase right now, um, it, like I said, remember I told you guys that if you come to the chapel, pregnancy comes in threes, okay? So just so you know, there are three people pregnant at the chapel right now. I told you so. Um, this is just today. Like, my wife's not here yet. She's probably uh, pregnant sick still. Uh, but there are two women. My wife will be here later. So that makes three. So if another one of you gets pregnant, and that's going to be the next service, I'm sure of it, not in the service, hopefully, um, then there's two more after that. But there is a massive amount of pain going on at my house right now. My wife has what you call morning sickness to the extreme. And I told her, don't tell her I said this because she's not at this service. I'm not saying this in the next service. I think we're having twins. That's just a hunch. We don't have the little baby cam until next week. If, if it is true, you've you got to be sworn to secrecy, this, this service, okay? Because if you tell her that I said that, she's going to be like, you prophesied twins. It's your fault. And I'll be like, no, your eggs were overactive. Okay, never mind. Um, but she is in so much pain. Literally, I can't touch her. If she's in bed, if she has to roll over, she's like, and I don't have the heart to tell her, like, do you remember what it's like to deliver babies? (laughs) This is nothing. You're going to go through the most wild thing that I have ever seen as a human male in my life. Now, I joke and jest like, oh, but how bad can pregnancy hurt? Because we, the male species, can't, can't experience that, praise the Lord. But at the end of the day, I... I've witnessed it. I've heard it. If you want to hear pain, physical pain, walk down the hallways of a maternity ward on a Friday night. There is the nurses screaming in terror. And then the moms. This is pain. Like I'd I'd never seen pain like labor pain. Jesus went through pain that I think would rival that amount of pain. And it was a long, drawn-out torture and torment of his body. But it was something that gave him greater pain that led to this cry. It it was the moment when Jesus, who had called God his father, all of his ministry, my father told me to go here, my father sent me to do this, my father sent me to do this. On the cross, he says, not my father, my father, but he says, my God, my God, why? Because it was in this moment that we see the depth of Jesus' suffering. Because in this moment, the physical pain had already reached its maximum limit. But in this moment, everything in our lives that we've done that is against God, and I don't just mean the do's and the don'ts. Like, I don't mean the time that you had too much coffee, too much energy drinks, the time you said a bad word, the time you were mean to your spouse. I mean every time that you chose something else to find your acceptance, every time you chose something else to feel valuable or to feel loved, every time you turn to the, uh, the excellence of your kids to say, hey, I'm a success because my kids are a success, or every time you turn to your spouse to say, I need them to love me, otherwise I won't accept myself, or every time you turn to your job to say, if I'm not good here, what good am I? Every time we've done that, we've broken away from God. We've broken away from the infinite value, and we've chosen the finite value. That's what the root of sin is. And in the moment that Jesus was on the cross, when he said, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment, God the Father had to turn his back against Jesus. He who knew no sin, Jesus became sin so that we might have everlasting life. 
in that moment, God poured all of his wrath, eternal, infinite wrath, onto his son. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus went to the cross, it says, for the joy that was set before him. That's why he went, because he wanted his forever family, you and me. And he went there and he said, I will experience the greatest pain that any being will ever experience. Not only the physical pain leading up to this moment, but just like in our human experience, who causes the greatest pain relationally when it breaks? It's usually someone that we love very much. If you think, think about it, and this is sad and morbid to think about, but this is what I think about all the time. Um, you can ask my in-laws. Um, I talk about death all the time at my house. I want to keep it up and current. I want my sons to not even blink when they hear about death. We, we were hanging out um, the other day, and Silas uh, was talking to my mother-in-law, and he was talking about the ring. My mother-in-law has got this huge ring. If you throw her in the gulf, she'll sink to the bottom. She'll never make it back up. She inherited it from her mother and her mother from her mother and her mother from, like, Audrey Hepburn probably. I don't know. Um, uh, but, but the cool thing about this ring is that this ring is going to be my wife's when Melody goes to be with Jesus. And that's really exciting because I am off the hook for a 20-year diamond. I mean, tentatively, depending on how long everything p- plays out. Charlie's here, I just realized. Say, hey, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> but Silas said, uh, Gee, your ring is so big. And I'm in the background thinking, yeah, I'm off the hook for my 20-year diamond. And, and Melody's used to it now because she, she knows, like, if we bring up death. And she also knows that I'd rather die first. I, to get off the hook of that diamond, I'd rather go be with Jesus first and leave, just leave the rest of my family here and God can raise my kids. But, but this idea of, of losing someone that you love, the, the more you love someone, when you lose them, the more pain exists there. Whether you're a person who has uh, had to un- experience the loss of a child, maybe you've experienced the loss of a sibling or a parent or that close relative who is like the, the bond with you. you. We all have that one person who's a, got that relative bond. They're our favorite, and you, maybe you've lost them. Maybe some of you have lost a spouse. And that heart-wrenching separation, that is... That is the closest that we will ever experience to the moment when Jesus was shunned. But it was even worse because not only was there a separation between God and the Father for that moment in time when he became sin for us, it wasn't just that he became sin and God said, we can't hang out right now. It was, it was that God said, all of my infinite wrath that I have, this anger that my kids on earth, they've just blown it, and they've sought after other things, they've run after other things, all of my anger that I have to have against that because it goes against who I am, I'm pouring out on you, Jesus. And this is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was separated from God, he, he experienced the infinite darkness that we deserved. Now, this is something that we don't talk about often enough, probably, because I love God's love. God is total, complete love, and God is total and complete holiness. God's holiness means he is other. He is set apart. He is different. The reason Jesus had to die a horrendous death and the reason God had to pour his wrath out on Jesus is because God is holy, and there has to be a requirement met 
But we could not meet that on our own unless we went to infinite separation from God. So Jesus took the infinite punishment upon himself. He was forsaken so that we would be accepted. He became, in that one moment, I believe, unloved so that we would be loved forever. He is the great substitute. Jesus did this for you and for me. And not only that, um, God the Father and Jesus and the Spirit concocted this plan before the world began. So the Father said, I, I love you. You're the apple of my eye. You're my heartbeat. You're my word. But because we want to love our creation, we're going to have to tear ourselves apart. Now, it's, this is every great story. Um, J.R. Tolkien, for those of you who are book nerds, he said that the essence of every great story has one of these characters in it. Someone who will stand in the gap. Someone who will go into danger so that you and I can be safe. And, and we all are drawn to this, right? We all are drawn to the hero. Nobody is captivated in blogging about how amazing boy meets girl is. Sorry, let me do a better reference for this crowd. Nobody is blogging and captivated about how amazing Little House on the Prairie is. Too far back? Okay, no one is blogging and writing reviews about how amazing... I got nothing. Okay. What'd you say? Greece. Says, okay. I know that you're older than me now. I wasn't going to say it, but you did. Nobody is doing that. But people are writing about Frodo Baggins. People took a book that was very, very old and made it into a nine-hour movie without extras. People will watch Braveheart again and again. If I yelled out, freedom! Every man in this room would have a little bit of blood boil, either because they resonate or they don't like Mel Gibson. But you know what I mean. We're drawn to these characters, Jared Tolkien tells us. Jesus was faithful when we were faithless. The cross became a tree of life for you and for me because it was a tree of death for him. But now this cry has, has some effects for us. Now here's how you grow spiritually. If you've ever wanted to grow spiritually, I've done this before, but it's been a while, so I'm going to do it again today. We have to see God's holiness and God's love. Jesus' cry showed us that God's holiness forced God to say, I must put everything on my son, but that means, guess what he puts on you now if you're in Jesus? You get nothing bad towards you. There is no wrath left over for you. There is not a day where you get the flat tire and you give somebody the hand gesture and you get mad at your spouse and you want to lock your kids in a closet. If you're in Jesus, even on that day, there is no wrath for you. There is no judgment of God that's cruising towards you like a tomahawk missile. There's nothing. God is disappointed. God gets grieved by us, but he's not going to pour out wrath on us because the wrath has been poured out. Now, the key to personal transformation is seeing God as holy and loving. Not holy or loving. Not loving or holy. He is 100% holy. Everyone say holy. Just want to make sure. And say loving. We get the love here. Because I talk about this a lot. The reason I emphasize the love of God is because in, in our direct culture, in like a 200-mile radius, the holiness of God has been elevated in a, a good way, somewhat, but I think not high enough. 
And, and here, let me explain what I mean by this. If you've ever walked into a church and walked out of that church gathering feeling beat up, shamed, or condemned, anyone had that experience at any church gathering? It could be here sometimes. Things slip out of my mouth. I know I've done that. I've walked into churches ready to meet God, ready to be encouraged, ready to see Jesus, and I've walked out feeling beat down, beat up, and ashamed. That's an example of a church loving holiness, but not necessarily the love of God and not seeing how they work together. And that's more of the conservative temperaments. On the right, the conservative theological churches, they want to emphasize holiness and morality. They want to say, don't do these things, do these things, then God will like you if you look like him. Now, now those are all good partial truths, but if you only do holiness, what you're going to create is moralistic people. And if you only teach the do's and don'ts that are found in this book, you're not actually going to stir people's affections up for Jesus. Then you have the other side, the conservative temperament, the liberal temperament is more of like the God is love. He just accepts everybody. It's okay. And it's this relativistic, God is just going to love you. But there's no requirement. Now, I need you to hear me. God is 100% holy and 100% loving. And I think that if you only preach God's love without God's holiness, you actually have a less loving God. The God of the Bible loves you more than the just the lovey-dovey, feely-weely God over in the, the liberal temperament of many church theologians because the God of the Bible said, my love cost me a lot. My love cost me a broken and shattered relationship with my son. I had to send part of myself to be crucified, killed, and then I rejected because I loved you so much. This is, this is the love that cost God everything. It broke the father's heart, literally pierced the son's hands, feet, and heart. That's how much God loves you. And if on the other side, you are holy but not loving, you're actually, you end up, what you do is end up lowering the bar. Some people actually think that they can be good enough for God to like them. And this happens over and over again. I need you to understand our ability to reach God without Jesus. It's not even like climbing a ladder. Some people refer to it, I refer to it as climbing a spiritual ladder and we're on the bottom rung. But I was thinking and praying this week and I thought we are not even on the rung. It's not that there's a ladder and we're trying to get to where the clouds are. It's that we are on the ground and God is on the furthest star that the Hubble telescope hasn't even seen yet. He is millions and billions of miles away. This is the the spiritual distance between us and God. Now, the relational distance is right here, but the spiritual distance, if we want to earn God, it'd be like us being on the ground, dead, with mountain on top of us, with our children jumping on top of the mountain, with a tractor pouring more sand on the mountain, and God being on the distant galaxy that we could see, and it's like us under that mountain saying, I'm going to make it. I can do this, but we do it all the time. Let me bring it all the way down so you can know that you felt this. It's the exact same thing that I said earlier. You walk into a church and you walk out feeling like you don't measure up, that God is condemning you, even though you believe in Jesus. What churches do is we lower the holiness bar from this massive cosmic chasm 
and we make it something we can reach. If I don't kill anybody between Monday and Wednesday, I'm good. If I don't have road rage during rush hour, only on the way to work, I'm good. If I'm nice to my spouse once per month, I'm good. If I don't ground my kids for an hour, I am good. And we lower the standard. We're taking God's holiness and making it these weird, piddly rules. Rules that we can always reach. Doesn't that seem odd? And if you go to different church gatherings, we all do it differently. And we do it here. Don't be, don't be fooled. Just because I preach the grace of Jesus doesn't mean we don't do it here. We do it here. The reason I know is because I've been in small groups here. I've been at my small group. I've been at Band of Brothers. And we're real people. And we're stealing, we're stealing the, uh, the agape moms. We're going to steal their tagline. The new tagline for the chapel is going to be all about Jesus. And then bullet point number two, bring your mess. Because I've been in these small groups, and here's what someone does. We're talking about Jesus and Bible study, and then we get real deep and gritty. And then all of a sudden, someone just drops a word, like a tier two cuss word. And here's why I know that we still do this at the chapel. Because I'm a pastor, which means I flutter about when I'm not here and angels carry me to and fro. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that when people cuss in front of me, people's necks have a rubber band reaction to look at my face. If someone says, blah, 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 beep, 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 everyone at that table that doesn't know me well or is new to the chapel, they'd be like, and they look at me and I say, it wasn't me, it was him. No, I don't do that. I don't do that. I take ownership. I don't really use bad words too often. But they do. People walk in here, and we're trying to get our door fixed. One of our doors is broken out there. And, um, and the guy who came to fix the door, he came in. I let him in. And I'm a pastor at a small church, so I just do everything. So I'm here. We're talking. He's from, he's from New York. You know, I like Brooklyn and Boss Pizza, blah, blah, blah. And he's a boom. And he starts saying colorful language. I don't tell people I'm a pastor right away because it ruins so much fun. <laughs> so in the end, I'm like, hey, how much do I owe you? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I got to give you a quote still. It's going to cost you like a kidney to fix this door. Okay, uh, and then I say, he says, oh, what do you do? He asked me, what do, I, what do I do here? Can I get your number is what he said. Can I get your number to call you back? I said, sure. I go get my card. Here's my card. Boom, I give it to him. And he goes, you're the pastor? But you got tattoos. I thought you were the groundskeeper. You let me cuss at you for this long? You're the pastor. God's going to be so mad at me. I was like, buddy, if you cussing at me is what making God mad, you got a lot coming. <laughs> but but he, he equated this, and we do it too. Now, I'm not telling you, please don't come up to me and give me like your litany of filth, okay? Because, yes, I am a pastor, but I am a pastor with tattoos, so I will smack you if you cuss at me. Like I'm, I mean, not if you're a girl because my mom would kill me, but if you're one of the guys in here, be warned. No, nah, that's not true. I hate to hit you with my Bible knock you out. But we do it. We have these rules. We have these rules because I've seen the way uh, people sober up when I walk into Cool Beans at night. They're watching a show. Everyone's drinking. And all of a sudden I walk in and the room starts to get real sober. (laughs) All of a sudden. Have you ever seen an intoxicated person try to act sober? It's ridiculous. (laughs) But 
we do it. Some of you are like so guilty, right? You're like, it was me. I think this, I think this mic is bringing out my inner comedian, you guys. Sorry, I need to, okay, focus, focus. We do this. We do this rules thing. We lower the bar so that we are accepted and others are rejected. And we do it across the board. Non-denominational, we have our own rules. Calvary Chapel's our own rules. Methodists, our own rules. Baptists, our own rules. Presbyterians, our own rules. And as long as we follow the rules in our tribe, God loves us. But that is not what this cry teaches us. This cry teaches us that God had to dump wrath on Jesus so that we would be accepted. And while it is distant, while it is the first time that Jesus said, my God and not my father, Jesus still said, in quoting this psalm, he used a personal name. He said, my God, it is high time that we all cry out, not to my God, you don't cry out to my God, you cry out, my God. If you're in the midst of a difficult time, cry out, my God, why does it feel like you've let me go? And then look at this growing expanse. And for those who haven't seen this chart before, I'll just put it up real quick, if I can. I can't. Can you put up the cross chart? The white image? There you go. So this is how it works. You get saved. You get a deeper knowledge of God's holiness. And you get a deeper knowledge of your sinfulness as life goes on. This is what happens. And the more you see God as holy... And the more you see yourself as a wretched sinner, the bigger the cross will become in your life. Now, if this is new to you, you can grab a piece of paper on the way out. There's a little two-sided paper that will explain this to you. It's on that table and that table. But the idea is this. If you ever stop growing, you keep the cross the same size. If you stop getting to see how big and holy God is, if you stop marveling at how much he loves you, and you stop marveling at how wretched you are, then the cross will just stay the same. But if you continually pursue how holy is God and how sinful am I, then the cross that bridges that gap becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what causes spiritual growth. It's not the white knuckling down. It's the looking at God to see what he has done for you in light of how incredibly holy and other he is. If I hear that God is holy, I may change. I may change for uh, a moment. I may change out of fear. If I hear that God is holy and someone preaches a really good sermon, I may try to be a little bit more couth and kind. But if it's out of fear, it won't last. If you don't believe me, ask children who lived in total fear, and that was the main mode of parenting. If your main mode of parenting is fear-driven, eventually your kids get out from under your house, and they're not afraid anymore. If, if your main mode of parenting is only love-driven and your kids have no sense of boundaries and right and wrong, then they're going to grow up thinking that they're the kings of and queens of the world and that they deserve everything. Just as in parenting, we have to see God as holy and different and big and massive, and sometimes we ought to be afraid in the reverence and awe way and that God is loving. When I hear... People say, God is holy, so change. I think that's not going to last. When I hear people say, God loves you right where you are, so change. If God loves you right where you are, that's only half of the story. God does love you right where you are. But you are such a mess, he will not leave you right where you are. That's the other part of this story. 
When we understand the cost, it changes everything. The people that cry during worship, the people that dance and sing, sometimes it's just that they're weird people. But sometimes it's that they've been gripped by this love, that their God would tear himself apart so that you could be brought in and made whole. This is what creates personal, lasting transformation. Seeing, and I forgot to do these bullets, that because, of, because God is love, we receive free grace. But because God is holy, we understand that the high cost of that grace. If you're going through suffering, this is a God who can go through it with you. There is no other God in all of world religions that is your companion and mine. Now, before you uh, give me the objections, I'm going to give you the objections that I always hear about this God. God, he can't be love and all loving because if he looked at this world, wouldn't his heart break? The thing we learned from Psalm 22 is that his heart did break. His heart broke in a way that we can't even begin to fathom. Or some people will say about God, shouldn't God bear the load for all of this creation since he is the one that made it? Isn't he responsible? God, God would agree with you. He is responsible, which is why he sent his son. Jesus' cry on the cross gives us a glimpse into the massive holiness and love that God had for you and me. So that now you leave your shame here. You leave your guilt in condemnation here. If, if you blow it and you sin, you should feel convicted, but you shouldn't walk around with a guilt cloud hanging over your head. If you do something that is wrong and sinful, you will suffer the consequences in this life still, but you don't need to carry around the shame. You leave it here. There's a reason why the biblical authors could say something that I hear very few of us saying. The Bible authors often would say, Job said crazy things like, I am upright and blameless before the Lord. And if you start your morning prayers with that dandy job, I am blameless before you, God. I am sin-free before you. You'd feel like you're lying through your teeth. This is the great mystery in the Bible when it says, God, when he looks at our sin, and, and I don't understand how this works. I don't know if the author was being metaphorical or whatever other word you want to use for it. He says, God remembers your sin no more. In Christ, we give God memory lapse. He poured out infinite wrath on an infinite being. And now he looks at us and just scratches his head. And he says, Dennis, man, I remember your sin no more. And he's going to say that to you at the end of the Bucks game today. He's going to say that to you in the middle of the game today. Because I think they're playing the Panthers, right? Yeah. You're very passionate about this. He remembers your sin in Jesus no more. Free. So we can wake up in the morning and we're freed from the guilt of our past sins. We're freed from the self-pity that so many of us are prone to. We can walk boldly before God and say, Jesus cried out. Jesus said, why am I forsaken? So I could say, yes, I'm accepted. Are you going to walk out of here today with that? Are you going to hold on to that when you start going through times that are difficult? When you blow it time after time, day after day, will you remember that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you can wake up every morning and say, 
my God, my God, I cannot believe that you would forsake your own son to make me your son or daughter. This is what causes lasting change. Let's pray. God, um, I thank you. I thank you for today. Uh, Lord, we are beginning this journey. And God, this service this will service will always be the smaller of the two services, but Lord, I already like this service more, and I'm not going to tell the second service that. Lord, I'm so grateful that you love these people and that we've got more space for kids, more space for adults. Give us a passion today to not spread the news about the fake moralistic God or the fake lovey-dovey God, but the God who is both holy and loving, the God who would not only make creation, but take creation's place on the cross. Give us hope for today, and remind us moment by moment that you remember our sins no more, that we can leave our shame on your cross, that we can leave our pain at the cross, because you stepped in when we were afraid, and you stepped up when we had fallen down. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.